Today we're going to look at Psalm 133. It's only three verses, but I have an hour, so I'm going <laughs> to... First service, uh, yeah, I, I got through as much as I can. This service, we're going to take our time a little bit more, I think. Psalm 133, three verses, a beautiful psalm. You can find it on page 519 if you have one of the few Bibles around you. Uh, but let's read through these couple of verses together, and then let's uh, dig in and see what God would teach us this morning. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. It says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray yet again. Heavenly Father, we... We love you, Lord. We thank you that you have created for us this miraculous unity that can only be experienced by your grace and through our faith in you, joining the family of God and really seeing the wondrous gifts that you've given us that we, you have bring uh, completely separate and different elements together. People of all walks of life are coming together in unity and what a glorious thing it is. We pray that we would, as the psalm says, behold that truth this morning, that it would impact our hearts and our minds and we might walk in unity together as a church and that uh, we might... Uh, continue to foster the life of the spiritual life that you've given us this morning. If there are any here who are not Christians, that they may hear the truth in these words and they may put their faith in you and follow you as well. But we give this time of Bible study to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this short song of David is a joyous reflection of the beauty of God's people when they dwell in unity. So I thought the title for this morning that would be good is The Beauty of Unity. And that's kind of a tongue twister, The Beauty of Unity, The Beauty. Um, but anyway, intro for today. I don't think that I need to convince you guys very much that our world has a significant problem, and that is that we can't get along all the time very well. Uh, if you look across the world, that is definitely something that you no doubt have witnessed. Even in our technological age where we have all these technologies that allow us to connect with people from different ethnicities, races across the world, um, I don't know that that type of technology, social media, has brought more unity and peace to humankind. I tend to think it has not. Um, and I think that this ability to interact across the globe has only demonstrated the brokenness that exists between most and many human relationships, which is a tragic thing. Uh, we can't in and of ourselves bring a unifying peace apart from God. And that's the picture that we see in this psalm. It is that only when a person submits themselves to God and incorporates into the family of faith can they truly experience this unity and goodness that abounds forever. So it's a beautiful psalm. But David, the author of this text, experienced both sides of this throughout his life, right? If you've studied the life of David, then you'll know he has gone through a lot of ups and downs throughout his journey. He began as a shepherd right in the fields, a young boy, and was called by God to go and stand up against the enemies of God, uh, Goliath in particular. And after that, he was um, 
by the prophet Samuel anointed to be king, but Saul, who was already king at the time, uh, didn't like that very much. In fact, Saul, the Bible tells us, was filled with an evil spirit, and he wanted to, to end David. And there was this civil war, essentially, that happened, a very small one where David and a group of men who were loyal to him and loyal to the fact that he had been anointed the king. But Saul had the, the majority of Israel behind him, and there was this fighting that took place for many uh, years between them. It wasn't until uh, Saul's demise that David really had this unity experience as he had victories with, with his armies. He, he took over, conquered the stronghold of Zion there in the southern part of Jerusalem, and he renamed it the city of David, and he established the capital. And there was this wonderful peace, this unity. The tribes were united under one king, King David. And, uh, and probably at that time, maybe he, he was reminiscing and he wrote this psalm. We don't know for certain. But of course, that was only maybe a high point of the unity that he experienced because years later, as his family grew, he had children. And of course, one of his sons rises up against him to kick him out of the kingdom and to take the throne for himself and cause an insurrection there. And there's all this disunity that erupts because of um, sinfulness in the, in the people of God. And so no doubt, David has experienced times of peace and unity and, and the beauty that comes from that, but he has also experienced times of splintering disunity and difficulty uh, in his life. And so from that vantage point, I think David is a good uh, person to, to really call to attention this wonderful, uh, beautiful truth of unity. Um, if we zoom out, though, if we're looking at the life of David, maybe we take a step back all the way to creation itself and take a bigger picture of what's going on. Why is unity so important to humans? Why is it such a need for us to have healthy relationships? Um, well, it is because that is the way that God designed us. He created us in his image, right? And God, in, in his nature, is a community. He has always existed in this community. We call it the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal, co-eternal, divine persons that exist as one harmonious God who have no lack and have always existed in this perfect, harmonious unity. And likewise, he created us, men and women, in his image to be like that, to need and to thrive with one another. In fact, in the early parts of Genesis, you may remember that Adam is looking for someone to be a helper, to someone to, um, you know, be his equal, so to speak. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And of course, you may remember what happens. He takes the rib from Adam and forms the first woman, Eve, his wife, and they form the first family, right? And that is when that human unity began. But of course, from that family came other families and from them, nations. And so the world has um, ballooned out from there, and they existed in community originally in perfect harmony, right? But of course, as you may remember, Adam and Eve both sinned against God in the garden, and they decided to go their own way. Because of that, corruption has entered into the world, and now our relationships are splintered. In fact, one of the curses that God declares upon them is that their relationship would be difficult, that they would be at odds with one another. And I think we can all attest that that is something that maybe we have experienced. Um, so this miracle of unity is what David has in mind. It's something that is not something we can create in and of ourselves. We need God to come and to bring that miracle. So I want to first look at the verse 1, kind of take apart a few elements there, and then we'll look at verse 2 and 3 where we see these poetic elements 
um, which are really the fruit of unity, what comes out of unity, or the, the descriptions of what unity really is. And so even though there's only three verses, there is packed within this text a lot of metaphors and language that give us a lot to look at. Let's look at verse one. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers or family dwell in unity. This is pretty much the main idea of the psalm. It tells you right away, behold, look, look at what God is doing. Uh, like the song that we, that we sang, right? Behold this holy God. This is a word that says stop and take notice. Take notice of what God is doing and that's what, he, what's what he's trying to convey to us. Um, like we discussed, right, this is the main idea of the, of, the, of the psalm, though I'm sure you would say it is a glorious thing for all people everywhere to be in unity. He has a particular group of people in mind, if you notice in that first verse, right? He calls them brothers or brethren or family. Um, while David, when he authored the psalm, no doubt had in mind the ethnically connected family of God, right? The children and the descendants of Abraham, um, and at this point in history, God's people were fairly narrow, right? They were a fairly small group of people. The majority of them were, like I said, blood relatives of one another with some people, like maybe Rahab and others, who were converted into the family of faith and brought into the people of Israel. But the majority of them were, they were family. They were actual blood relatives. But of course, when Christ come, came, the son of David, who was the son of Abraham, he expanded that understanding of God's family for us. One of the best places I think we see this is in Matthew 12 as Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's there with a large crowd and his family comes to him. This is in Matthew 12, 46 and 49. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand uh, to the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So brethren in this psalm, which David is writing, right, it, he has in view the narrow, the narrow view of, of the people of God. And Jesus is now expanding that. And he is saying, according to his new expanded definition and standard, all people who put their faith in Christ and do the will of the Father are included in the family of God. Also, it's important to note that, yes, we are the family of God, those who have trusted in him. But in this text, it also says those who dwell together, dwell in unity together. So what does this mean? Um, the, this Psalm 133 was a song of ascents, as we saw in the beginning of it, right? And these are psalms that were traditionally sung by the Jewish people as they were ascending or going up to the Temple Mount to worship on holy days, on feasts. So they were traditionally sung by pilgrims. Uh, Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient Near East as they went to the city. So a family from Bethlehem, for example, they would get together um, maybe once or twice a year and go to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate the Day of Atonement or the Passover, um, one of the holy days. And this is one of the songs they would be singing as they were traveling, because back in those days, they didn't have cars. They had some maybe animals to help them travel, but generally they walked everywhere. Uh, they didn't have anything to pass the time, and so they would sing together and they would worship God as they were traveling. Um, this would be like one of us who are going on a road trip maybe, and you would get in the car together and sing a song together. I feel like our, we don't do that anymore. 
I think our culture has kind of lost touch with that, uh, that like social thing that we used to do. I don't know what songs would we even sing as we're driving, like the wheels on the bus go around. It's like, how lame is that? I, don't, I, I, I was racking my brain to think like, what example can I find? And I don't really think that we have one, which is kind of a tragedy because I think this is a wonderful bonding experience that the people of God had as they were worshiping and traveling. They were looking forward to dwelling with their brethren. So they were coming from the outskirts, coming together and dwelling together in unity. Um, they probably sang this song every year as they travel, like I said, but The year of Christ's crucifixion, things may have been a little bit different, actually quite a bit different for many of them. A new meaning was uh, arising from this song that they were singing. The Jewish believers, they'd gather there in Jerusalem like they had done all of their lives to, uh, to celebrate the Passover, and then after that, Pentecost, which is the next feast day. And maybe they sang this song as they were traveling there, but that year was different. Jesus, who many people had mixed feelings about at this time. Some of the Jews had said that he was a great prophet who did miracles, and uh, some other uh, Jewish people said that he was a heretic and that he claimed things that were completely heretical, and then others thought he was the son of God, right? But most of them had heard about him, and they knew that he was recently crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal, and then there were these stories bubbling up about how he rose from the dead, how the tomb was empty. And so no doubt all of this is going through their minds as they're talking with their neighbors and they're traveling to Jerusalem and they're singing this song together, how beautiful it is to dwell in unity. And then the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, you remember, remember from the early parts of the book of Acts. And we read there that Peter got up, and there's thousands of people out there celebrating these feast days from all over the place because they spoke different dialects, different languages, right? And he preaches the word to them. And Acts 2.41 says, those who received his words were baptized. And there they added, oh, they added that day about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people heard the gospel from Peter, this new understanding of who Jesus was. He is the Messiah, and they believed, and they They followed uh, him, and they were baptized. But then they had this dilemma, right? They're They're in the city. They've left their hometowns, and these thousands who had radically changed their worldview, they totally, they couldn't go back to their normal lives because they were completely denying historical Judaism, right? They were, they were embracing this new way of looking at the Bible, and they claimed Jesus was the Messiah, and they had committed to following him. So what did they do? What could they do? Well, you may remember Acts 2 goes on to say in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. What a beautiful picture of unity. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. They were distributing the proceeds to all who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness in their hearts, praising God and having favor with all people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so from here, they are dwelling together in this amazing unity, and they are bringing in more people who are seeing the Messiah for who he is, Christ, and they are trusting in him. And so this amazing thing happens. And I can't help but imagine that many were singing this very psalm as they were going to the city, not thinking that this was going to be different than any other year. And yet God did something amazing and brought from 
you know, probably some splintering, a, a wonderful unity between these people, and they formed the early church, right, the first church. They had committed to dwelling together because they knew that that was the only way that they could foster their faith, uh, and that was in a faith that was effectively outlawed, right? We know that at this time in the church history, the Jewish leaders were seeking to put to death Christians. They had to band together and work together. Uh, let me just say, this does not mean that we as Christians should read this text and think that we need to now go and buy a compound somewhere and all move in together, sell all of our stuff and live like sort of communists or something. Um, that's not what this text is saying. Tragically, some people have sort of taken it that way. But that's not really what this is saying because they were in a very unique position, right? They were not in the same situation as we are. Their context was very different. The reason they did that was because their circumstances required them not to scatter back to their homes, but to band together and form this community. Nowadays, we don't have to do that because there are communities of God's people throughout our city. They're called local churches, right? That's what we are. We are a gathering, dwelling together, and worshiping God in unity. The principle, I think, is what is important for us from this text. To dwell together means living in relative close proximity to one another, right? And committing to ongoing fellowship uh, that is built both on faith and friendship, building relationship, learning about God and from God through his word. That is what we do every Sunday. That is what we do in all of the different aspects of our church and small groups and in uh, men's and women's ministries and all of these ways. So that principle applies to us. Uh, for some of us, though, it may literally mean living together. Um, it is pretty cool. My sister, Ashley, who's the uh, kids director, has a, had a room for rent, and one of uh, our new members, um, Emily Payne, needed a place, and God in his providence allowed those two to come together, and now she has a place to live. And we see that from time to time within the church, where we actually take in one another, where we are actually physically dwelling together. But that's not the case for most of us. Most of us will just be um, carving out times in our week, right, to get together. Maybe it's on a Sunday. Maybe it's on a Thursday night if you join us for small groups. Or maybe you come on a Saturday once a month for the men's and women's gatherings. Whatever it looks like for you, it's, it's this dwelling together consistently, learning from one another and growing together. This is the shining example of unity that we see within this New Testament church um, that David perhaps is, is uh, reflecting on in his time and couldn't even imagine the amount of glorious unity that would come even into the future. But now let's look at the next couple verses. Verses 2 and 3 have a few somewhat strange metaphors, or not metaphors, rather they're similes, um, and they are descriptions of the unity that he's talking about. And so the four descriptions that I want to highlight from the next two verses is that unity is precious. It's costly, right? Number two, it leads to holiness. Uh, it, number three, it brings life. And finally, it leads to blessings forevermore, eternal blessings. And so let's look at each of these in turn. Point one, godly unity is precious, we see this right there in verse 2, right? It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Um, I just had to get a verse in here about uh, the beard. Oh, my gosh. The holiness of the beard, the glory of the beard. That's not necessarily what's in view. Of course, it's talking about this oil. But what's interesting is the oil that's being poured over, it's not essential oils necessarily, okay? I know we have those in the Northwest, but this is a very different kind of oil. It's an oil that was crafted by the, the, uh, the Israelites, and it was precious. 
And so much so that you would use you know, it in somewhat small amounts. Of course, in this text, we see this extravagant picture of pouring the oil so that it just flows over Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. And so it's talking about setting aside the people of God. Just um, uh, the precious oil that was used to anoint this high priest, of whom Aaron was the first, was both very costly and it was also very holy. So let's look at first the cost of it. If you go to Exodus chapter 30, and we'll get into this more as we get into Exodus, let's read about this oil. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. So these were costly materials that had to be gathered by the people of God, and God was instructing them to combine them in this such a way that it made this wonderful perfume and anointing oil. Uh, to find a very precise worth of each of these elements is kind of difficult, obviously, because this is an ancient text. In fact, they use these measurements, uh, 250, 500 shekels, and at this time, that was more like a unit of measurement, not a unit of money. Of course, later, the Romans, during the intertestamental period between the time when uh, you know, the Romans had, were ruling the world, they established coinage and they made coins, which were called a shekel, and it was based on this unit of me measurement, this shekel of the sanctuary. So if we kind of take that amount and we extrapolate it out and add, you know, adjust for inflation, which is important these days, uh, we can kind of come up with an, um, like a number to associate with the preciousness or the costliness of this oil. A very rough estimation is about $22,540, which is basically what it takes to fill up your gas tank nowadays. Um, but this was a very costly material, right? That's the point. It is precious. The same is true for the unity that exists among God's people. It is precious. It is worthy of admiration. It's worthy of protection. And uh, that's what's in view here. It is something that they had to fight to maintain, right? In, in his day and age, from foreign invaders, from internal conflicts, they had to maintain this unity because it was so precious. And that continues into the New Testament. It's not a coincidence that the Proverbs are filled with all these warnings against creating discord and keeping unity. But the unity in the Old Testament that David has in mind here is imperfect in some degree, right? The ultimate unity was still yet to come, and it came at the greatest cost that would have a lasting and eternal effect. We read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul teaching the church there says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your own body. So the Apostle Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to be holy, to pursue godliness, and to be in like-mindedness with, with God. And why is that? What is his reasoning for this? Why should this matter? It's because you've been bought with a price. You are very costly to God. 
What does this cost? Well, simply it's Jesus, right? God in the flesh who came down into this world and put on humanity, added humanity to his deity, and he lived under the pressure of sin like all of us in this room. He was tempted as you and I are tempted. He struggled amidst all of this chaos and splintering, disunity and infighting and arguing, all of the things that we are, uh, you know, steeped in, it seems, in our culture. But eventually, he paid the ultimate price by giving his life on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins upon himself um, and in the most shameful way possible. And all the while, he remained perfect. He was in perfect unity with God. But um, he did that so that we might be able to be brought into unity with him. The price that was paid so that you and I can live and dwell in unity today is no less than God's only son. That should cause us to look to one another in this room and recognize how precious we are. All those little bickering that we have with one another, all those little disagreements we may have, yet if we were just remind ourselves how precious each other are, how God views us as so costly, he would be willing to give his only son as a sacrifice for you who have put your faith in him. That's true for us in this room. That's true for believers around the world and other churches who are uh, faithful to the gospel. And so we ought to keep that in our minds. We are precious. The unity that we share is costly, and let's not take it for granted. Point number two, godly unity leads to holiness, right? And again, this oil, what is the other defining element of it? It was something that was holy, right? It was set apart. We see this in Exodus 30, continuing there. It says, And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall not make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Uh, That's like three times he's mentioning the holiness of this oil. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider someone who wasn't a person of God, shall be cut off from his people. So this was something very serious, right? The, the oil that he's describing was both costly and it sanctified or set apart someone and made them holy. Um, but again, in this Old Testament context, this ceremonial holiness that was created through the priesthood, through the ceremonies that they had to go through the people of God, was only a shadow of what was to come, Right? You may remember from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says that these elements are shadows of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Uh, The true form of holiness would not come until Christ came and gave access to all people to have this holiness brought in, not just the high priest and not just at these ceremonial times, but he offers this holy unity, this anointing oil to everyone. Uh, One verse where we see this very clearly Uh, shown is that firstly, we are made holy by God as an act of of his work alone in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, right, that is God, or I'm sorry, he being God made him who is Christ to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't know any sin. He was perfect so that in him, we might become the righteousness or holiness of God. That is a a verse that honestly puzzles me often as I think about it. We have become the righteousness, the holiness of God because of what Christ did and our trust in him. Mind-blowing to think about, but that is what is happening. Notice in this verse how it's very corporate. 
It is not I and my, it's not my uh, righteousness, no. It is we and our, right? He made him who knew us and to be our, uh, you know, that we might become the righteousness of God. So it's these, these corporate plural pronouns that are in use. That's not unintentional. It's something that all of us can unite behind. We have become the righteousness of God by an act of God alone, not by our own good deeds, right? We don't try harder and do better to earn God's favor. That is not what's in view here. Um, We accept the holiness that God has given us by faith, just by trusting in what he has done. We are made holy by him both individually and corporately, right? But more than that, just more than just God making us holy, he has also designed the church in such a way that we help one another to maintain holiness and to be conformed more into the image of Christ together. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, have committed any sins, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the Apostle Paul here is encouraging the church to help one another, to bear one another's burdens, to maintain the holiness that God has given to us. Um, have you seen nature videos on like the Discovery Channel or plant, uh, Animal Planet or on YouTube nowadays? I feel like more people are watching things there. But when you notice the way that a lion tries to get prey, they will you know, hide in the grass. They will stalk a a group of wildebeests, and they will, the wildebeests stay tight in a pack, right? They all stay together because in their numbers, they have strength. But unfortunately, you see, sometimes one of those wildebeests will drift off. Maybe they have a little bit of a lame foot or something, and they just go away from the pack, and they find themselves alone. It is then that the lion pounces on that wildebeest who strayed from the pack because they are vulnerable. They're not amongst their, uh, their family who is protecting them. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that Satan is like that hungry lion, right, seeking whom he may devour. And so we need to stay tight in a pack. We need our pack, which is the church, to stay safe from sin and to guard each other from all of the things that may be attacking us from the outside spiritually, right? But I think too often we're scared to let people in or we're scared to commit to something. That's something that we struggle with. But The alternative is far worse. Seclusion and secrecy are always a recipe for disaster. It might be easy to hide and to, uh, it might be difficult to be vulnerable with someone else, but again, the alternative is very dangerous. It's much more dangerous to stay quiet and go off alone than to insulate yourself uh, with the stronger and wiser people in the faith. And that's what we do for one another. The reason we encourage people to be accountable and to have brothers and sisters in their lives that they're talking with and learning from and that are guiding them through this walk with God, it's not to tear you down. It's not to find all the problems you have in your life and sort of rub your nose in your sins. Far from it. This text tells us that we need to not be putting burdens on to people, but taking them off, right? We are bearing one another's burdens, and all of us can relate to the fact that we have things that we need help carrying, no doubt. A good illustration I heard on this was um, there was some psychological testing being done in the 60s by a psychologist named Dr. Martin Seligman, 
and he was testing something that he called learned helplessness. So he put a, a dog into a, a metal kennel, and the bottom of the kennel was electrified. And every now and then, he would send a little jolt, and the dog would yip and run around and try to escape. But of course, the kennel was closed. The dog couldn't get out. And so th the dog settled down, and then another jolt would be sent through the kennel, and the dog would try to escape. But after a few times, the dog realized, there's no way for me to get out of this. He learned to be helpless to the shocks. Well, even after they opened the door to the cage, and they continued to shock, the dog still stayed and did not try to escape. It wasn't until they brought another dog who had not been conditioned through this learned helplessness and put him in a kennel directly next to the dog, both electrified. When the shock went through, the healthy dog immediately jumped out because it knew what was going on. Of course, the other dog then, who learned helplessness, saw this dog who overcame this difficulty and followed him out. Likewise, our sins in our lives that we commit, maybe the first few times that we're, we're getting into those sinful activities, it shocks us, it jolts us. We think, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't something that's healthy for me. I shouldn't act that way. I shouldn't have said that to that person. But if you have no one there to challenge you and to help you understand that, you will become helpless to those things and you will just get acclimatized. You will become numb to the sins that you are committing or the things that you're doing that ought, you ought not to be doing. It isn't until someone who is healthier, stronger spiritually, who understands these things and they show you a way out. This is how the church should function, right? We should be bearing one another's burdens and helping one another to be conformed more into the image of Christ, looking more like him, embracing this holiness that God has given us. And that's really what we see in this oil that's being poured out. It's holy, it's precious. We as the church shouldn't be putting burdens on one another, like I said, but we should be taking them off each other. Gospel-centered community is the mechanism by which God created for his church to become more like him. Billy Graham famously said, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep warm. But when they separate, they die out, right? You've seen that. You've been camping and you've seen the coals in a fire. When you spread them all out, they get cold. When they're together, they stay warm. And that's true for us. We must stick together, work together to maintain this holiness that God has given us. And we need to bear one another's burdens. Point three, the next verse that we see that godly unity is also life-giving, right? It's not just about being close to one another. It's about giving life. And we see this in uh, verse three. It says, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What is that talking about? What is he getting at when he's talking about these two mountains, or really a mountain and a, and a hill? Mount Hermon is on the northern border of Israel. It basically creates that northern border. It's the tallest mountain in that area, and it accumulates a lot of the water for that area. Of course, it's a dry, arid place, the Middle East, um, but... In the wintertime, snow accumulates on Mount Hermon, and the precipitation that comes in from the water sources there east of the Jordan kind of collect against that mountain. And because of that, the rainfall and the dew that comes off that mountain really gives life to the whole valley there. And this is interesting because he talks about how the dew or the rain from Mount Hermon is falling on Mount Zion. Now, Zion is a small hill. It was a fortress on the southern part of Jerusalem. It's very far away from the mountain. And so these are two opposite things, one in the north, one in the south. One is a large mountain, one is a small hill. And yet, because of the, the water that is shared between them, they are unified in life. 
and life is growing and fruit is coming out, crops are growing. That's the, the, the view that we see in this text. So the picture here is that these diverse geographical places are coming together in unity as the rain falls. We have diversity within our church, right? We have people who have different walks of life, different ethnicities, different languages, um, different uh, statuses in society, different amounts of, of wealth or, or lack thereof, right? And yet we come together in unity to give life and to, and to lavish in God's love. That's what we to do. So David is saying these diverse places, they work together to bring the land life and crops. And uh, we should do that as well. We ought to be bringing life to one another. I'm grateful that our church is full of life. I hear this wonderful little baby crying, and some, you know, pastors or preachers might be annoyed by that. Not me. I'm excited. I love to see babies yelling in the service because that means there's life. Life is erupting in our church. It's a glorious thing. I love to see baptisms just after service. We're going we're gonna to celebrate with Elijah as he's baptized into new life. Many of us in this church have grown spiritually, even though we've been Christians for many years, and that life is precious and beautiful. We need to foster it. We need to keep it going, right? Our gathering can't only be about proximity. It's not just coming in here and sitting next to someone. There's more to it than that. You can actually attend church on Sunday mornings, be friends with someone after service, and kind of say your goodbyes, and yet not experience life transformation if you're not opening up yourself and making yourself available to participate in the life of the church. Our culture has become very individualistic. I'm sure you know this, right? We do more socializing online in front of devices than we do with one another, and that ought not to be the case. We need to develop these friendships, um, and we need to move on from just being here to being with one another. A.W. Tozer said this, 100 religious religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make up a football team. The first requisite is life. So there are some churches, tragically, who there may be quite a bit of people there, but is there life there? I th- I'm grateful to say I can feel the life in this room, I can feel the life in our church, but it's something we must foster. Um, for those of you guys who are green thumbs, who like to garden and like to uh, do that kind of thing, I know around here that's a, a big thing. Um, in fact, we had some of our flowers tragically die out here in our planter box because the heat and all of that, but Trudy, who is our um, you know, resident gardener for the church, she brought some marigolds in and planted them here. And what's interesting about marigolds is they actually have a lot of properties that uh, you know, allow other plants around them to thrive and to grow. Marigolds um, have a scent that attracts bees, which pollinate. It also detracts um, from predators who come and eat other plants. And so whenever you have a garden, you know you plant marigolds. They bring life. Now, the walnut tree is sort of the opposite. The walnut tree is planted and it secretes a poison out of its um, roots and prohibits other plants from growing. And so there are sort of, in this picture, two types of people, right? There's a marigold that is full of life, that is encouraging, that is, uh, you know, challenging us to be more like Christ. And then there's a walnut tree who maybe they aren't so happy about this or aren't so happy about that, and they want to mention this, and they want to mention that. I'm not going to point fingers or name names. I'm just saying that the, the goal of us being in this church together is to be marigolds for one another, bring life to one another. And we see this encouraged in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul speaks there, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
but only what is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If you find often, and I, I'm guilty of doing this too, where I'm not happy about one thing or another and I want to let my friends know about it, that's not always the bad thing, but keep this text in mind. Let no corrupting talk. Or what you're saying, is it causing corruption? Is it causing life? We need to be causing life as the dew from Hermon is bringing life to the valley. We ought to bring life to one another. Don't be content also just coming in here on Sunday and leaving and not opening yourself up to this transformational ability that we have for one another. Point four, the last thing we'll look at is really that last verse, or not verse, the last sentence of 133. It says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So this kind of supernatural unity that exists, that results when God's people dwell in unity, is, leads to eternal blessing. And of course, we see this pictured wonderfully in the book of Revelation as we see a vision of the future of God's people. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so, People from every corner of the world gathering together in joyous celebration, worshiping God in unity. That's the picture of our future, right? The church across the world is gathering and will gather for that eternal worship service. The reason we need to dwell together in unity now with one another is because guess what? We are going to be together for a long time right? Look around the room. Glance to your left. I know this is weird when, when preachers are like, do this, do that. But seriously, look around. Look at the people in this room. Guess what? Not only are you going to have to deal with them in this lifetime, you're going to have to be with them for eternity. Never-ending relationship with the, your loved ones who put their faith in Christ, your friends who have become like loved ones, right, who have put their faith in Christ. What a beautiful, glorious everlasting blessing that we will be able to be together, and not just us, but we're going to be with God, right? We're going to be worshiping God forever. That's what we see in Revelation. So we better get started now learning how to be unified together, loving one another, and encouraging one another. The church community is eternal. It's unending, uh, and that's something I'm very grateful for, right? How beautiful it is when God's people dwell in unity together, it is precious, it is holy, it is life-giving, and it provides never-ending blessings. But it is one that we must strive to maintain, right? There are dozens of references in the New Testament. I won't give you any, but you know that they're there. Exhortations about maintaining unity, being of one mind, not causing disunity, right? It was one of the main things that Christ prayed for in his final moments as he was preparing to go to the cross. What did he do? He kneeled before the Father and he prayed these words in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. That is Christ's prayer over all of us today who put our faith in him. Jesus paid the ultimate price, his life on the cross to purchase this amazing gift of unity and unending blessing so that if we trust in him by faith, we could experience this forever. 
Don't let this opportunity, this blessing, pass you by. Press into it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have provided for us these never-ending blessings of a community that is challenging but encouraging, that causes us to be holy and more like you, that brings love to one another and to our community. It's just, honestly, we are speechless at the beauty of your church. May we not take it for granted. May we um, see the preciousness in one another. May we bring life to one another and not to be complaining or to cause disunity, God, but just to cause unity. We look forward to all that you will do in our church and continue to develop in this unity. Also, Lord, we pray for those who may uh, have yet to put their faith in you that they may see the beauty of your church as you prayed in John 17, and they may believe in you. Uh, It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.